0: Beyond Leadership, a Cleveland Clinic podcast at the intersection of leadership and everything else. In this podcast, we will co-mingle with extraordinary thinkers and explore the impact of their ideas and experiences on leadership and management. Hello, everyone. I am your host, Dr. Brian Bulwell. and today I'm joined by Dr. Ryad Dwight, Chief of the Integrated Hospital Care Institute at the Cleveland Clinic. Ryad is one of our most accomplished leaders in its My pleasure to introduce him to all of you. Rayed, welcome. Thank you, Brian. Happy to be here. So, Rayette, you're a pulmonary doctor by training, and now you've got a very large and complex leadership role. Can you tell us a little bit about the beginnings of your career? Yes. So, thank you. I've been at the Cleveland Clinic for
1: 30 years, Brian. So, actually, I got my 30-year certificate just in July. Congratulations. Thank you. It is really an accomplishment. I never thought when... My wife and I came to Cleveland here now 30 years ago, obviously. Our d- decision was three years, and here we are 30 years, and three kids later, we're still in Cleveland. And that really, a lot of it is uh, due to the Cleveland Clinic, but also Cleveland. Cleveland's a, g- a great place to live, but the Cleveland Clinic is definitely an outstanding place to work. And I came here to do my fellowship, so I did my pulmonary and critical care fellowship here after residency in Southern Ohio and Dayton, went to medical school in Jordan before that. But really fellowship here is what got me started at the Cleveland Clinic. And I stayed on on uh, staff since then. And the amazing thing, I think, as I reflected on this, is how I spent here 30 years, but really had at least five or six careers here, as you kind of kindly alluded to, and I almost like left without leaving, because I kept growing here from Being on staff the first few years to doing research, to doing education, to having leadership roles, you know, multiple leadership roles, uh, and now uh, leading an institute. So, really, almost every five to six years, I had a different career and a different uh, leadership role, which is, I think, what kept me here pretty much.
0: You know, you became a very accomplished researcher in the Pulmonary Institute, and I believe you've had significant federal funding. Was that your initial focus?
1: No, that's a very interesting story in its own right. So when I was a fellow here, I wanted to do research. So I tried to go spend some time in the lab, but uh, I had to work with Dr. Erzurum, Erzurum, who is now the chief academic officer. And she had an, her own lab and she said, you have to spend a year in the lab. But our fellowship was really designed to be a clinical fellowship at the time. I was the first one to try to do any basic research. And I was told, no, you you knew you're coming to a clinical fellowship. You can not do research. It really took vision from Dr. Wiedemann, who was my chairman at the time, to really de- redesign my schedule, really after the fact, after being here as a fellow, to spend a year in the lab. I ended up spending a year after as a, an extra year after fellowship as a clinical associate to do research. But that was not even my initial plan, and then, as they say, the rest is history. I've been uh, NIH-funded for the past 20-plus years, and really, once you start that and you you start discovering things and learning things, it really becomes part of your career, and it's something that I tell people all the time. It probably does not happen too many other places that somebody comes to an entirely clinical fellowship and has an entirely clinical career and midway switches focus to become really a researcher. Since then, several in the respiratory Institute have done that, but I was the first, I remember. That's
0: quite an accomplishment. So how do you continue to renew your R01s? It must be difficult. Yes. Now, I I just sent one in in uh,
1: September, so last month. Maybe this will be my last one. I'm really, my goal is to, help the next generation, people who have I trained here. There's several faculty and staff members here who are just about to get their R1s. So I'm really trying to hold on to that until they get their own R1s. Many of them had K awards, which, as you know, I'm passionate about physician-scientist training. And I lead the KL2 program here, which is a citywide program in Cleveland, to encourage young staff to get NIH funding and to kind of have careers in uh, in research. And I have two staff really now who are themselves applying for R01s. So hopefully they will carry the legacy and uh, the torch moving on from my lab, which is focused on the pulmonary circulation.
0: What was your first significant leadership role?
1: Uh, running the pulmonary hypertension program. So that was more than almost 20 years ago. Uh, my chairman at the time came to me out of the blue. I never thought, and actually, literally, if you asked me then in, in early 2000, if I ever do anything related with leadership, I would say you're crazy. But, but I would. I literally, and people asked me that question at the time. And I said, no, it's not going to happen. I love research. I love my patience and education. That's all I'm going to do for the rest of my life. And then my chairman walked into my office one day and said, what do you think about running the pulmonary hypertension program? I said, why? It's Apparently, turned out to be has been dysfunctional. There was a leader there who was really not doing well. They, Several physicians were not even talking to each other. They were not even aligning practices. And the reason I took it on is because my research was in pulmonary hypertension. So I figured, okay, if I fix the program, I can help my research. So I took it on. And it's amazing to me how... I started building the educational aspects of it, the research aspects, mostly the clinical practice. Just getting, you know, all I did was just get people together to meet every week and just share best practices. And I remember still the nurse practitioner at the time looking at me, what do you think you're going to do? This has been dysfunctional forever. You're not going to be able to fix it. I said, you know, if I take something on, it has to be the best that it can be. I don't, you know, I don't accept anything short than uh, less than excellence. And I can tell you within a few months, the, the, the group transformed. They became highly functional, working together, just by getting them together and listening to each other and realizing what the other person does and what doesn't do, what they don't do. And recruitment, of course, I then uh, I was supported to recruit more people. So like young blood came into it and it became an example, actually, nationally and internationally, how to build a pulmonary vascular disease program that has all aspects. Clinical, we get referral from like 40 states. Education, we built a summit that, that, Attracts patients from more than, I mean, attendees from more than 40 states and internationally and research. You know, we built a research program that was the, the nucleus was my work, but then we built, uh, we built on it. So we really built a very well rounded program. And I realized at the end of that, wow, we can do a lot by, you know, building programs and leading people more than you can ever do just on your own, seeing patients and doing your own research. And that's where really. My, my entry into leadership.
0: So just very briefly for the non-physicians listening to this podcast, pulmonary hypertension is what? So this is
1: high blood pressure in the lungs. If you know of like high blood pressure, everybody recognizes that. But this is specifically in the lung. It usually affects young females of like child-rearing age, but it happens now with older people as well. So what happens is the pulmonary circulation, the vessels in the lung, start constricting to a point where the blood pressure rises and results in the right side of the of the heart failing. Usually systemic hypertension, which is the more common type of hypertension, is where the left side of the heart is dealing with it. Now we're dealing with the right side of the heart. And it's a very devastating disease. When I first started taking care of these patients, they would live no longer than two to three years. That's what the average lifespan. And now there have so many medications, at least a dozen medications that they live, you know, 12, 15, 20 years. Initially, the only viable treatment for lung transplant for them was lung transplant. Now, we rarely send them for lung transplant, which is great.
0: Thank you for that. So you had your first kind of exposure to leadership, and and it sounds like it went well, and primarily because you just got everybody engaged and talking and listening to each other. So then what? What was your next big leadership role?
1: Absolutely. So the next leadership role was when you and I worked together on the Board of Governors. So that led to when I probably people recognized, maybe so around the Institute, it became really part of my hypertension program was became the flagship kind of program within the Respiratory Institute. And I was soon after that elected by my peers here in the Respiratory Institute to serve on the Board of Governors. And this is where you and I got to meet and I got to learn from you about all the leadership lessons that I have now. So And we spent, you know, five years together on the, on the board. That I can tell you probably the most transformative experience for my, in my leadership journey. Because, you know, of course, the board of governors is a group of physicians that really are responsible for the physician practice, you know, the hiring, the firing, the the disciplinary action, the search committees, review committees. And just to get that 30,000 foot view of an organization like ours that at the time was. A ten billion dollar organization, was just was an amazing view, and an extra perk for it, other than working with you, Brian, of course, <laughs> was that at the the last two years we serve on the board of trustees at the Cleveland Clinic, and the last year we spend on the board of directors, and that by was transformative in its own right because you get to see how true business leaders who know what they what they're doing day in and day out, how they make decisions, and the you know, one thing. I learned that I would never have thought of before is on that from that group is how a wrong decision is better than no decision. It's because by itself, no decision is a decision. But at least if you make a wrong decision, you can get the troops moving and you can, you know, adjust course. But if you don't make a decision, you leave people wallowing, which is probably the worst possible thing for leadership. And that's one of the things that I learned there.
0: Yeah, the Board of Governors is. It's one of the, um, I'm not sure it's unique to the clinic, but, um, but we elect members of the professional staff, the docs, to have a five-year term to, it's kind of a combination of a medical executive committee. And as you said, we're kind of the governance for, for the whole physician practice. And you wind up having a exposure to the entire organization, which these days expands to Florida and London and Abu Dhabi and Canada. And and that's really fascinating. You also wind up getting to know the CEO and the chief of staff, both of which are, tend to be invaluable. And I think at that time it was Dr. Cosgrove, if I'm not mistaken.
1: Yes, it was Dr. Cosgrove, and then Dr. Han, and then Dr. Donley after that. Yeah. One of the things <laughs> I actually also, as you said, you get to. See the organization from a very high level, the thirty thousand foot view, but also from the ground level because of the annual performance, review, uh, annual professional review that we do here, and you get to interact with staff one on one and learn from them really firsthand all the great things that they're doing in the organization, and that's another valuable lesson I learned there is the importance of leadership. That's where really it came very clear to me because, as you know. We've done uh, APRs for institutes and departments where they had great leadership, and we've done it for institutes and departments where there's bad leadership. And this one realized, whoa, you know, that has a huge impact. And I had, I have to say, I probably learned more from those who were not doing a good job than the ones who were doing a good job, because it's kind of obvious, I'm not going to do this. Okay? I'm not going to do this when I become a leader of my own group. And those were invaluable lessons.
0: Well, give me a couple of examples. i mean, so... What did you learn back then about, you know, the people who were doing well from a leadership perspective and those who weren't?
1: Yeah. The ones who did well, I feel one of the important things they did is communicate well. And you know, you and I have talked about this, you know, all the time about communication and the importance of the communication. And I think it's really misunderstood. I've been in leadership meetings where the leader speaks the whole time and they really think they communicated. And nobody felt that they communicated, right? Because it was just like a one-way lecture. And I've been in meetings where the, the leader really just started the conversation and maybe wrapped it up at the end. They really spoke very little, but then everybody felt engaged and communicated to because they were heard. I think communication, as you and I know and talked about in the past, is more about listening than talking. And that I see that many leaders... Miss that, and I, you know, I've been guilty of it, uh, of course, myself. But sometimes you, we we get wrapped up, and do you want to trans? want know, give so many things. You want to give the message. You want to make sure people hear the message. But people hear the message. They want to. What they want is to be heard, and uh, that's really a big contrast between good and bad leaders. The other one is something I learned from one of our early days when I did department reviews: is the walking around. You know, they actually one of the. Uh, one of my uh, leaders here told me this is the, uh, what do you call it, MBWA management by walking around. You know, it's like really how to see people in their place. They appreciate that you see them in their office, in their clinic, in the hospital setting. And you just learn about them more, and I think they appreciate it more. And that's something I learned from good leaders. Their, their teams would be a lot more engaged when they see them kind of interact with them in their environment. And I, I thought that to be very helpful
0: well i really agree with that in fact when i give leadership talks these days this is something that that i emphasize because you know in today's really whole society we, we don't really meet that often in person and and one of the one of the ramifications of that is it's it's pretty frequent for people to to hear information second third fourth hand you know so-and-so said this about that or so-and-so said that about that and And boy, as a leader, I think it's important to go to the source, you know, get out of your office. If there's an issue someplace, go talk to the people who are involved or, in fact, you know, right right in the middle of it. And odds are you're going to get more of a nuance, more of a clarity about what the real issue is. And if you just rely on other people, you know, giving you second or third hand information. So I think that's I'd certainly agree with that in a very big way. One time that,
1: that really helped me quite a bit is during COVID, when re- people were real, there was a lot of uncertainty, and people were hungry for information, and I wanted to make sure that they all knew what I knew in as much real time as possible. I started actually, during COVID, to have uh, meetings twice a day, like at the beginning of the day and end of the day. And people attended, I can tell you, these meetings were, I mean, they're virtual meetings, but they were attended by hundreds of people because they just said, "What to know what's going on. And that's something I maintained, of course, now I do it once a week. But even that compared to other institutes, I think that some people think that's too much, having once a week town hall with the entire institute. But I feel they hear directly from me. And I said, when people stop attending, I'll stop having it. But people still show up. So to me, if people vote with their feet, in this case, vote with their mouths, you know, they come and they attend the meeting. So if the attendance has been steady. And I feel that
0: that is meaningful to people. And that to me, how I make decisions about meetings is just if nobody comes, we'll stop having them. So you became the chairman of the Pulmonary Institute or the Respiratory Institute. And, and how long was it between getting that role and and... COVID and, you know, 2020. How long were you chair before? Yeah, so so I started as chair of the Respiratory Institute in 2018. So
1: really, officially, maybe almost a year later, so at the end of 2018, because I was interim for about uh, 10 months. So basically, a year later, COVID, uh, maybe a little bit over a year later, COVID uh, hit us. And That was, of course, very frightening and very times of uncertainty for all of us at the time. Now we look back and say, yeah, we went through it. But, you know, I remember the first days of it where nobody knew what's going on. Nobody knew what to do. And leading through times of uncertainty is probably because as leaders... We always lead through uncertainty, right? Because, you know, we, not everything is clear. And that's why we are leaders. Because if everything is known, you don't need leaders. Yeah. Uh, it's really, we take, you know, but, but that was like a uncertainty on steroids, right? Because it's not only we didn't know, nobody knew what was going on. So that was, this is why I think communication was key. And so to me, try to get information from as many sources and communicate it to as many people as possible, but really just responding to that. And I am proud of how as a system, the Cleveland Clinic, how we prepared for it, but also as an institute, because my institute at the time uh, still does, had pulmonary, critical care, and infectious disease, which really are the center of all these COVID things. And later on, allergy, which nobody thought had anything to do with COVID, when the vaccine you know, hesitancy and the vaccine immune response and reactions came up, then even allergy got pulled into the mix. So that being able to manage all of that was really a, a transformative experience for me and for the entire team because if you recall many of the of the providers went home right because but you know the there was no the elective surgeries were canceled a lot of elective procedures were canceled but we are here we are pulmonary we're infectious disease we're in the icus and that was you know very uh, difficult times but also difficult and challenging but i'm proud that we really went through them. And I remember having the meetings with the teams and what I used to tell them is that this is really our calling, right? We have been preparing all our lives for this. We have trained for it. It's not just a job at that point. This has become a calling. If it's a job, people would quit that kind of job. But I think taking it as a calling, and I'm proud of our team, who they took the challenge head on, really ran into the storm and of away from it and to the benefit of the organization.
0: So for our listeners, Dr. Dwight was pretty amazing during the first year of COVID. I, I think you know you brought up communication, but it's also a lot of leadership because you basically did stuff on three levels. You, we had to make sure that that you know for for our listeners, we have around twelve to fifteen regional hospitals and many of which had ICUs, and we had to make sure that this. The care was the same in all of the ICUs because there were so many COVID patients, and and Riyad very very quickly got all of his ICUs aligned, and the care, in fact, was stellar. Secondly, I mean, you can tell me much more about this than I know, Riyad, but you kind of formed a a national consortium of pulmonary chairmen to talk about the latest, you know, updates or the latest way to treat people much more quickly than could have been done via just publishing. And then, of course, Riyad kept all of us informed within the Cleveland Clinic who were not part of the Pulmonary Institute or Respiratory Institute. And, you know, as I was running the cancer center at the time, and certainly we were very much open as well. But those updates from Dr. Dwike were incredibly insightful. So pick any one of those topics, Riyad, and, and why don't you <laughs> embellish them a little bit? Um, I'm, I, was, I was always fascinated by what you're able to do on the national level. Yes. and actually, th-
1: the nice thing about that is we had a national group uh, already that we were meeting together. We learned. And actually, that's how I learned uh, the very first thing when we interacted with the individuals, the physicians in Seattle and New York. I remember, they were hit early on in the pandemic. And this is kind of was the origin of my presentation to my first presentation to the executive team. I remember. When Tom reached out to you, Dr. Mihalovich, our CEO, and he wanted to hear about our plan for the ICU, what we're we going to do for the ICUs, as you pointed out. So, you know, it was helpful to be part of these national groups. And then I presented this talk, which focused on three things at the time. I called them uh, space, staffing, and I called it stuff, which turned out to be supplies later on. Basically, if you boil it down to these three things, that's what we needed to do in the response of the pandemic. And I think then you go into each one. And you know what you're going to do in you know, a space. Do you cohort? Do you do not cohort staffing. How many people can you see? How can you make intensivists see a lot more people? And then of course, stuff, remember supplies, uh, the supplies for masks and ventilators and all these things. So we had groups working on each one of these and that allowed us to coordinate all of this. And the fact the Cleveland clinic had a leg like up. During this, because we already functioned as a system. As you pointed out, Brian, we oversee the ICUs in all our hospitals. And that allowed us really to have visibility. I have this dashboard that would show me every bed in the entire system and where, whether it's full and empty. And if it's full, is it a COVID patient or not? If it's a COVID patient, are they intubated or not? So just with one screenshot, you can see what's happening and be able to move resources. That was a, right? I kind of. Almost remember when I presented this to the executive team at the time, you could kind of sense the sigh of relief. It's okay; somebody knows what they're doing, kind of think, but uh, because, because it's just a huge, a huge undertaking. But I, you know, but of course, uh, the leadership was very supportive, and the teams that we have—you know—our critical care chair and pulmonary and ID chairs were just like amazing in their own ways and helping us navigate. And the staff, the individual staff, stepped up in ways. That really surprised me and impressed me in more than I can imagine.
0: Yeah, again for our listeners who may not have been on the front lines back in 2020, one of the challenges in the first few weeks was was we didn't know what the volume of COVID patients requiring our our help was going to be in the next week or next month, and the projections were very scary that that we would be overwhelmed by by just a massive influx of patients with COVID. And so we were putting together all sorts of contingency plans about what to do about that. And and obviously Red, you were front and center. But that was part of the whole challenge.
1: Correct. Yeah. That's because the uncertainty is really the uncertainty at every level, national, uh, local, you know, medical, social, because you know people have different attitudes about it. So really uncertainty like at every level is what really I think what characterized the beginning of the COVID pandemic.
0: So from a leadership perspective, I mean, obviously, you were very good at communicating. But I think another thing that I found to be very, very important during COVID was was not just being present, which clearly you were, but also being authentic and real. Somehow, if you were authentic and real in a crisis, that really resonated with the team. And I think it was a glue, you know, that, that kept the team connected. And, you know, you're always a very authentic person. And I think it I'm sure it served you well.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. And I felt that exactly one, one thing is sharing what you know with people, but also be honest with them and, you know, about what, how you feel and what's going on and be there with them. I agree with you a hundred percent that you cannot fake authenticity. I think it's something that people can smell a mile away. And you know, if you're not authentic and, you know, you, and that really uh, leads to another leads to something you and I have talked about uh, over time, which is trust, right? People will trust. People that they feel authentic and honest, and that's something you know. Yeah, you and I talk about how you can do things really much more efficiently and much faster if people if your teams trust you, and that's something you cannot take for granted. You can never take for granted. You cannot take it lightly. As as I think I heard so I don't know who it is that who said that you you get, trust is gained in drops and lost in buckets because really, just one misstep, you can lose a lot of trust with people, and you that's something you have to kind of built build and hold on to because it it helps everyone. It helps you, it helps the team, it helps everybody who's involved. Yeah, I
0: agree. Well that's certainly true. And trust is thematic of I think good leadership and and I agree with you about, you know, how how it's won and how it's lost. Another thing you just said that that's interesting, you, you said that one of the keys was managing stuff. And and the higher I I personally became in leadership roles, it seemed like the more stuff I had to deal with. Yeah. And- <laughs> the lack of a better term, yeah. I love the term. Actually, I remember, um, <laughs> you know, back in 2016 when then Vice President Joe Biden was in charge of a project called the Cancer Moonshot. And the goal was to accelerate cancer research across the country. and And I would go to forums where he was talking and and he said, you know, he didn't know much about cancer research, but he's really good at stuff, especially removing obstacles and stuff like that. Yeah, Some yeah. Are the words he used. Yeah. And, and as I, you know, have taught and thought about leadership over the years, it's one of our roles is, in fact, to deal with stuff because stuff can be things that get in the way, you know, and they can make it hard for your team to to succeed, and you know, you have to kind of sometimes you have to get in there, figure out what the stuff is, and deal with it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think there are two... We have many roles as leaders, but there are a couple that I feel are very important. One, before I get to the stuff, is dealing with uncertainty and ambiguity. Sometimes if people just want to know that you know about it, and then they move on. So we kind of absorb that uncertainty, anxiety, people, people anxieties and uncertainties. We just take them in and allows them to do their job better. And that's something... I find myself doing regularly. And the other one is really removing obstacles from in front of people just because of who we know, our connections, you know, our roles also as leaders. We are able to remove obstacles from people who really want to do the right thing and want to run with their projects, but they run into obstacles that may be easier for us. They are much easier for us to help them with. Then for them to navigate. And I tell people that all the time. You know, I, I have, I delegate a lot. You know, that's, you know, uh, one of my things that I like to do is empower people and you can only empower people by delegating to them. But once you delegate it to them, the thing I tell them is keep me informed and let me know if something, if it stops. Because the worst thing that could happen is you get stuck at something and I don't know about it. And you come to me a month later with something I could have probably either easily done or kind of give you an idea of how to get around it. And
0: that's what I really tell people is, you
1: know, just keep me informed and let me know if there's anything in the way that I can help with.
0: Yeah, Yeah, exactly. I really agree with that. So the clinic right now is undergoing a a reorganization and, and your, your role has expanded to a new Institute, the Institute of Integrated Hospital Care, in which you've added a variety of service lines, including, emergency room, ICUs, some other things which you can tell me about, but this is all kind of an example of change management. So why don't you tell us about your new role and how you approach change management? Yeah, this is probably the, one of
1: the most exciting things we have done at the Cleveland in a while. I remember, you know, you and I remember when the first wave of the institutes happened in the early 2000, 2005, 2006, that's when we formed the 18 institutes, clinical institutes that we have now. This is, as Dr. Mihalovich described it, described it as Institute 2.0. So what we did is we combined some and split others. So the institute that I'm leading is the Integrated Hospital Care Institute, as you mentioned, has the same things that were in the respiratory institute other than allergies. So we have pulmonary Critical care and infectious disease. We also have anesthesiology, emergency medicine, hospital medicine, urgent and express care, and perioperative medicine. And this, there's nothing like it anywhere else in the world, and that's what makes it uh, so exciting. So the idea is how to smooth the patient journey uh, out. But before we get there, as you pointed out, you know I have big visions for that, obviously, how to make this work. But as you said, to get there, you have to kind of get the people on board. As they say, like as a leader, you have to get the people on the bus, you know, because otherwise, you're not going to go anywhere. So, and it's fascinating as I go through this, how I'm learning about leadership styles of other people, you know, those who hold people accountable, those who don't hold people accountable. And the one thing that really became very clear to me the importance for us as leaders is to do these two things simultaneously, which is advocate for our people and teams and hold them accountable at the same time. This seems counterintuitive, but I think to me it's perfectly makes sense. You have to do both. One without the other is just not going to work. You know, if you just support, 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 there's no accountability. If you too much accountability and no support, people just burn out. So I think how to find that right balance And I think that is key to to change management. People, again, know they can trust you. You are fair, you are trustworthy, and you're you're going to advocate for people while you're holding them accountable. The other area to deal with in change management is conflict, right? There are conflicts because people have different incentives, they have different agendas. And then how do you reconcile that? And I think... One thing I would, is not negotiable to me, is civilized discourse, right? You know, if you want to, I'm willing to hear everyone, but everybody has to be civilized, everybody has to be respectful. And I've been fortunate that I've built a transition team that has been meeting the last several months, which I call it the IHI transition team, and it's leaders from the existing institutes that joined the new institute. And we have been really having amazing conversations that are respectful and everybody contributes and they're moving forward. Some are moving forward faster than others, but that's, I guess, the role of a leader to get everybody kind of to kind of keep the people moving fast, not holding them back, but also kind of pull the people who are are behind to get them on board. Because, you know, if we don't do that, we will not succeed. And that's uh, my current focus.
0: So conflict management is not easy. Any tips? So I had years of experience in that, as you know. I served the conflict interest committee at the Cleveland Clinic
1: for uh, for about ten years. Oh my God, the stories there! So, but yeah, so it's uh, <laughs> we could have another another podcast, Brian, about conflict management. But I think the key that I learned from that and from another committee I served on, which is the capital committee, is the key is communication. I mean, I come back to that again, because and finding. I am learning more and more that it's not really compromise that we're looking for. Is we looking for a win-win situation when people are, you know, and initially I said, well, we can't find a win-win. These people are so different when they come in and they start. But but the more you talk and the more we hear people and listen what they have to say, it's actually easier than I thought is finding win-win situations in times of conflict. But the key to that is what we really started this podcast with, it's listening. And that's what I sometimes, so many people I can tell you come in into a conflict resolution knowing the answer. If you come in knowing the answer, you're going to fail. You need to come in with an open mind, listening to both sides or more if there are more than two sides, and then really coming up with a solution that works for them, not for you. And that's one thing I've noticed that we as leaders sometimes we miss is how we have our own personal agendas with anything, whether it's a meeting, whether it's, budget, whether it's a hire. I think for these kind of things, uh, the conflicts, the best possible way is to come with no preconceived agenda. Just come in with an open mind and listen and want to just have a good outcome. And that helped me quite a bit over the years. I
0: think that's really good advice. I like that a lot. The only other thing I might add is I remember a few years ago, one of my, I've had several executive coaches and one of them told me when if I was in a conflict situation to to view it as an educational opportunity. And 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 that tends to reduce stress and anxiety. And anyway, it's worked for me as well. But I I certainly share your your fundamental thought about listening and not having preconceived notions. And the fact is, I'm with you, Rayad. I think a lot of the time, if not most of the time, you can actually come up with a win-win. I, I, And one of the things I think, you know, I was able to do when I was leading the cancer center, if there was something that made sense to do and it was an issue of how to pay for it, that was a silly thing in my mind to draw a line in the sand about. I mean, there's plenty of ways, whether it was the cancer center paying for all of it or 80% of it or whatever, but you can get creative with solutions. And I think that sometimes we're just not creative enough because there's usually ways to get things done.
1: Yeah, hundred percent agree. And if you just list, listen to people, they'll give you the solutions. They may not be even aware of them themselves, but if you listen to them, they'll just bubble up, and they'll, uh, you can
0: just grab onto them. I think that's that's a great point. Gosh, we could talk about a lot of things with your career because you've had a truly stellar one. But any things you'd like to leave our listeners with from a theme perspective? Any 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 other pearls that you have that have been important to you in your various leadership roles?
1: My own career, the one thing that maybe I add that we didn't get to address is being adaptable. I feel that, you know, change is inevitable. You mentioned change a few times and change management. I think as individuals, I think the more adaptable we are, the more likely we are to succeed. And as teams, I encourage my teams to be adaptable. Don't get set in your ways. The world is changing. We have to adapt to it. And I keep that in mind. Whenever change comes at me or from me or either way, it's just an adaptability helps quite a bit.
0: Another thing, Ray, though, you've always said yes. I, I tell this to people a lot. You know, if you have a new opportunity, usually you should say yes. And I mean, as you mentioned, you were head of the capital committee, still are, I think, and and head of the Physician Misconduct Committee, and I'm not sure what we call it now, and had a variety of other roles as well. And I usually, if you're exposed to something new, you, you you learn a lot and you gain perspective. And saying yes usually is a good idea, in my opinion. Yeah, thank you for that.
1: One of my mentors a while back uh, gave me good advice. He said you should always keep 10 to 20% of bandwidth. your bandwidth available. You never know what comes up. If something good comes up, you'll, because if you are too busy, you can give up. You know, you can pass important opportunities that, you know, because you're busy with things that may not be as meaningful. So I think it's always have a little bit of bandwidth will help.
0: Well, Ryan, thank you. This has been fabulous. And to our listeners, thank you so much for your continued interest in Beyond Leadership and I hope everybody has a lovely day. Take care. This concludes this episode of Beyond Leadership. You can find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash beyondleadership, or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We welcome any topic ideas you may have for future episodes, comments and questions about this or any past episode, you can let us know by emailing us at executiveeducation@ccf.org. at ccf.org.